friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. begin a new series. We're going to dive into the passage of um, Book of Esther. And so we're beginning a new series right now. So may I request everybody once again to please rise from their seats and we will come before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this wonderful morning. Thank you for your manifest presence in our praise and worship, O God. Thank you, Lord, that our hearts are full of your presence. And we come before you right now once again, praying and depending on you, Lord, to move in our midst. Lord, you know my weaknesses. You know my limitations. And so I entrust myself to you, O God, that you might give me clarity of speech and clarity of mind so that I can speak your word boldly, clearly, plainly, succinctly to your people, so that they might understand your will. I pray as well for the miracle of hearing upon the hearts and the minds of your people, so that whatever is communicated to them, Lord, they would apply in their lives. I pray for inspiration. I pray for faith. I pray, O oh God, that you will grow our spiritual lives today. And whatever is going to be achieved, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Providence Overrules Pride. As we observe the world at large, we, we might have this conclusion that it appears to be that the world is in one incredible mess. And we're probably asking whether God is aware of what is happening in this world or whether he is doing something about it. These are questions that are probably running through our minds. Just very recently, as I mentioned to you, we went to Angeles, Pampanga, and we were hosted by Pastor Ding Bolus, who likewise uh, pastors the church in Agape in London, in the United Kingdom. And there were some developments that were quite disturbing about what had happened to their school because they have an ACE school in London. It's a Christian school. And by the way, about a couple of years ago, it was voted as a model school in London, which was really quite surprising because it is a Christian school. It's not a secular school. But certain developments have taken place and the government has made certain impositions upon the school, making it secularized. And one of the things that the government has required from the school in Agape is that they should have a curriculum that is LGBT friendly. They should have that kind of curriculum. Now remember, it's a Christian school. Not only that, they have been told that they needed to put up a third toilet a third toilet, one for the males, one for the females, and one for the so-called third sex. And not only that, they have been required right now to actually give sex education to their nursery students. Sex education to their nursery students showing videos to them. And you know what? They were given a deadline. I think the deadline was, I think, uh, December of last year. 
And they were told to somehow conform to all these requirements. And if they did not, then they had no other alternative but to close the school. To make a long story short, as they weighed their options, they realized that they had no other alternative, they had no other choice but to close down the school. Otherwise, it could no longer be a Christian school, the Christian school that they have started and established. And so when situations like that take place in the world that we are living in, we get to ask, Lord, are you aware of these things? Are you doing something about these things that are taking place? And you know what? The book of Esther actually gives us a breath of fresh air because this book actually speaks about a God who works behind the scenes. There are times when it appears that God is silent. There are times when it seems like God is not aware of certain events that take place in our lives as well as in the world. But let me tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, that our God is aware of everything that is taking place. And not only that, He is working behind the scenes on behalf of His people. That is what you and I will see in the book of Esther, that God is in full control. In spite of man's sinfulness, in spite of man's rebelliousness, he cannot thwart the purposes of God. There is nothing and nobody that can stop our God. You know, what's interesting about the book of Esther is that the name of God does not actually appear. In the book of Esther, you can search the pages of the book of Esther. You will never find the name of God. Remember, I gave you a homework, an assignment last time around to read the whole book of Esther. And if you could tell me if uh, the name of God appears in the book of Esther. And I'm sure if you did that, you did not find the name of God. But the fingerprints of God are all over the pages of the Bible, all over the pages of the book of Esther. And that is why this book is actually very inspiring. God will always do what he wants to do and nothing and nobody will be able to stop our God from achieving his purposes. Now in this chapter, we will see man's pride and rebellion against God. And yet, King Ahasuerus, whom I will introduce to you in a bit, did not know that his pride was actually the very stepping stone by which God would protect his nation, Israel. Isn't that interesting? Even the mistakes, even the sins, even the flaws of certain men, God can simply turn that around for the good of his own people. That is why Romans 8.28 is actually a very good verse to memorize wherein it speaks about God's sovereignty. All things work together for good to them who love God and to them who are called according to His purpose. And of course, we know that the primary purpose of God in verse 29 is conformity to the image of His Son. So this is what we know, brothers and sisters. God is at work. Could you say to your neighbor, God is at work? Say to your other neighbor, God is at work in your life. You know, in one word, if I were to describe this book, it would be the word providence, in which God's divine knowledge issues out in divine outworking. What a great comfort to know that our God is omniscient. What a great comfort to know that our God is the Alpha and Omega. He knows everything from beginning all the way to the end. And God, by the way, is not passive about that knowledge that He has, but He is proactive. Because he knows certain things, he is able to arrange circumstances, he is able to arrange certain events, he is able to arrange certain people in such a way that he is weaving a tapestry that ultimately benefits our own lives. 
God is meshing all of these things together for our own good. Now, in this book, you will not find stupendous miracles. You will not find divine intervention. But rather, what you see is God working silently behind the scenes. That is what you will see here. What you see is God is like that ultimate chess player. I recall the times of Bobby Fischer and Gary Kasparov. They went into some classic, um, classic matches, you know, with their opponents. Of course, there was Spassky as well, that, that Russian chess player. And they were all geniuses. They were able to put their pieces in the proper spot so that they could win their own events. And I see God in that way. In an analogy, I see God in that way. He is arranging the pieces of our lives. And He is arranging everything ultimately for our own victory, for our own protection, and our own provision. God is so good. God is gracious that He is able to do that. You know, sometimes we think that our lives are unconnected dots. There are certain events that take place in our lives and we think they're isolated. They are independent of each other. We think that there is no connection between these dots. And I'd like to be able to share to you, brothers and sisters, that the events of our lives are actually connected. Both the good and the bad things that happen to us are actually connected. God is actually preparing something for each and every one of us. And that is why we are not to treat events as isolated or independent. No, God is connecting those dots. And in hindsight, we will be able to see that. And we will be able to say, how wise is our God? How great is the wisdom of our God. And what a blessing that we are children of God. What a blessing that we are sons and daughters of God. That He is preparing the way for us. That He is ahead of us. That He goes before us and that He is behind us. God is in control of every single detail in our lives. Now, to be able to appreciate God's workings in the book of Esther, let's do a little background study once again. We did a little of that last uh, weekend when I was preaching, when we talked about the big picture in Esther. But allow me to just refresh your memory. If you recall, Israel was brought into exile into Babylon as a result of their apostasy, idolatry, and rebellion, and injustice. All of those things were judged by God as they were exiled in Babylon. Now, while they were in Babylon, however, God, in His faithfulness, continued to provide for His children. God continued to protect them. And as a result of that, they became quite comfortable in Babylon. Some of them were probably able to build houses. Some of them were probably able to set up businesses. So life became comfortable for them. And then later on, the Babylonian empire was judged by God in a matter of a few decades. The Medo-Persian empire took over. And interestingly, as prophesied in Isaiah 200 years before, Cyrus comes into the scene and he issues a decree for the people of Israel to return back to their own homeland. Now we know this was the plan of God. This was the perfect will of God. And yet, the people of Israel, as I mentioned to you, had become quite comfortable in uh, Babylon as well as in some parts of Medo-Persia such that they no longer wanted to fulfill the perfect will of God. They stayed on. What they did not know was that Satan had the plan to destroy them. Not only to destroy them, but to exterminate the entire nation of Israel. Not only the Jews who were in Babylon, not only the Jews who were in Medo-Persia, but even the Jews who were in Jerusalem. Guess what was at stake? If that happened, my dear brothers and sisters, we would have no salvation. 
We would have no Messiah. We would have no Savior at all. God would not be able to fulfill His covenant with Abraham as well as with David. The Messianic Psalms would not be fulfilled if Satan succeeded. But you and I know Satan cannot succeed. Amen? In the end, God always wins. Hallelujah. Amen? He always wins. And so we thank God for that. Now, I'd like to be able to share to you how God set in action this plan of protecting his own people. God uses the pride of King Ahasuerus to set things in motion to protect his people. There are three points which I'd like us to get into and I'd like to be able to show to you what to expect this morning. First of all, in the first point, we're going to talk about the appetite of glory and self-exaltation. And under that three things, glory-seeking desires the greatest platform to display one's greatness. Glory-seeking also is addicting. You can never say enough is enough. When you are glory-seeking, it's quite addicting. Glory-seeking also wants a grand finale, and we will see that in a bit. In the second part, we're going to talk about the judgment of glory and self-exaltation. Now, here's a quotable quote. Glory-seeking always ends in glory-sinking. Could you say that with me, please? Glory-seeking always ends in glory-sinking. Just you. Louder, please, for the last time. Now remember that. And the final point is the fury and the folly of glory and self-exaltation. Certain expressions of pride are found here. Pride is impatient. Pride is insecure. Pride is vindictive. Pride seeks to protect the self. Pride rests only when blood has been shed. So those are the things that you and I will expect in this morning's sermon. And so let's dive in straight away into the setting as we take a look at verses 1 and 2, please. Let's read this. It goes, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. So this provides for us the setting of the story. This happened, as mentioned, in the days of Ahasuerus, specifically on the third year of his reign. Meaning to say, he was a newly installed king. So he was only on his third year. Now, the place or the setting where this was happening is in the citadel in Susa, where his throne was. Now, please take note of the fact that he was ruling over 127 provinces from Ethiopia all the way to India. By the way, you can still search the world map right now. And you will discover that India still carries the same name and Ethiopia still carries the same name. But if you are to look at the world map, you will see the extent of the rule of this man. Obviously, with, with that kind of a power and authority that he was wielding, that caused him to be very, very proud. By the way, uh, Ahasuerus is also known as King Xerxes. So they're interchangeable names. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, they're basically the same. And I'd like to be able to point out to you that he actually had two palaces, which was actually very normal for the kings in the Middle East. The kings in the Middle East had a summer palace, and they also had a winter palace. Now in this case, where this story is being told was in the winter palace. But he also had another palace, which was in Persepolis, and that one is a summer palace. Now, the citadel was the fortified part of the city, which was located centrally and was situated on a hill. 
Now, there's an obvious reason why it was situated on a hill, for their protection. And so again, uh, the king was in a place which was quite secure. Now, let's talk about the appetite of glory and self-exaltation that King Xerxes or Ahasuerus had. Let's read verses 3 and 4. It says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for how many days? For many days, 180 days to be specific. Now, what do we discover here as we read that particular passage? What we discover here is that glory-seeking desires the greatest platform to display one's greatness. This was really a gathering of the VIPs. This was really a gathering of the very important persons of that particular kingdom. And why was there such a gathering? So that King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus could somehow show to them that he was the greatest VIP of all of them. So he was actually setting this up to put himself on a pedestal to be admired, to be worshipped, to be exalted by people. And that's exactly what you and I discover with pride. So the mother of all banquets was provided for all the VIPs to show off his wealth. And guess how long this was? The greatest possible number of days for the celebration was 180 days. Now, how many months are we talking about here? We're talking about six months of a grand banquet, brothers and sisters. Now, you and I know that in some wedding ceremonies, you could actually spend millions just for the banquet itself. And we're just talking about one day. Friends, this is not just one day of a grand celebration. This is a full six months of a grand banquet. It was not an ordinary feast. It was a grand banquet. And once again, what was the purpose of all of this? To showcase the wealth, the power, and the authority of King Xerxes. Now, some of you might say, well, you know, I can't relate to that because I'm not as famous or as powerful as this person is. Well, that might be true, but could it also be true that there is pride inside our hearts? We might be having our own little tiny kingdoms, and in that tiny little kingdom, we're really having this self-admiration and self-exaltation. We might have our own little band of our own fans. And we want them to somehow admire us all the time. Friends, sometimes pride can be something that is not so obvious. And yet, it is present in every heart. And you and I know it's not a safe place to be in. Xerxes was actually endangering and putting himself at risk because of the pride that he had. Again, what was the purpose? To display the riches of the royal glory and the splendor of Ahasuerus. And again, let's ask ourselves, do we have that kind of a mindset? Do we try to draw attention to ourselves and to our achievements in life? And friends, again, that's not a good place to be in. Now, let's continue on. Let's read verses 5 all the way to verse 9. And here's what it says. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa. Now, take note, the six-month banquet had just been completed. And then again here, we find another extra seven days of celebration. Continuing on, it says, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, 
There were hangings of fine, white, and violet linen held by cords of the purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Now, when we're reading narratives, one of the things I'd like you to be able to do is to exercise your imagination, all right? Now, we don't have pictures here, but then again, you know, when, when this, these descriptions are being given to us, let's try to imagine what kind of a palace, what kind of a garden this was. And you and I begin to realize, wow, this was really incredible. This was really amazing. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Wow. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. What do we discover here about glory? Glory seeking. Well, glory seeking is addicting. As I mentioned to you, if you're always on the hunt for glory, you can never say enough is enough. You will always be wanting more and more of glory. And that's exactly what you and I see here. What King Ahasuerus wanted was, was more glory. He wanted to extend the time of this celebration. He wanted to extend the time wherein people would admire him. The celebration was extended for one more week. In other words, even after those six months, he was not content with that. It had to last a little bit longer. It had to last a little bit longer. And by the way, this is the reason why some athletes, including boxers themselves, sometimes they know they're over the hill, but they just can't stop fighting. And you've got to wonder with their, with their bodies being uh, beaten up for a number of years, what is it that is, that is there to, to prove? But then again, it's, it's the glory. It's, it's being up there. It's being the top dog. You just can't allow it to end. And that's exactly what, what you and I see here. For the proud person, he can never say enough is enough. And that's why the greatest to the least were hosted in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So practically everybody in the city was being invited. You know, the king wanted a big audience. He wanted more people to admire him. He wanted more people to, to look at him and exalt him and put him on a pedestal. Again, friends, this king was so uh, fixated with himself. Now, if we take a look at the celebration, the place where it was chosen to celebrate all these things, you can just imagine the fixtures, the interior design, the architecture, the expensive materials that were used to, you know, to build up that, that particular area of the king's palace. And you could not help but say, wow, this must be an amazing place. You know what, one of the things that we discovered when we went to Israel is we discovered that the architecture of that time was state of the art. We would think that they were primitive people compared to us with all our technology, with all our advances. We would think that our designs are top of the line. But let me just tell you, when you go to, to Israel and see the ruins you could imagine how grand and how beautiful they were. And by the way, they were built for, for several years. And that's why this place was really exceptional. Again, it was all a setup so that they could celebrate King Xerxes. And in verses 7 to 8, what do we see? Unlimited drinks were supplied. And guess what were the vessels that were used here? Well, friends... Not bottled water, but rather what was used here were golden vessels. And just try to imagine, if you come from an ordinary home, even if you were a top official, probably you would not be drinking from these golden vessels. 
But the king's palace was extra special. So they were given unlimited wine, drinking from a golden vessel. And they, you know, holding, you know, that, that cup, they began to feel what, what royalty feels like. Again, what was the purpose? To exalt King Xerxes. Friends, once again, let's try to examine our hearts. Is there a tiny bit of pride in us which is coveting self-admiration? Do we seek validation from other people? Do we seek uh, uh, the applause and admiration of other people? Friends, let us remember that as believers in Christ, we only please an audience of one. Amen? And that is God himself. Amen? That is only God himself. By the way, in the story, the queen also had her own party hosting, presumably the wives of the VIPs. There was a greater and ostentatious display of wealth, which will always be done by the person who is proud. That's why we, we hear the word show off. Because that's exactly what these people do. They are showing, they're showing up what they have, producing envy in other people's lives. Now, continuing on with the story, let's take a look at verses 10 and 11. It says, On the seventh day, last day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess for she was beautiful. Now think about what had been happening for the past six months and seven days. It was all a grand display of all that the king had. But then it was the last day already. There had to be a grand finale. There had to be a grand exit so that people would remember the glory of the king. And so as he was thinking, what else can I show in my kingdom? What else can I show from my palace? And he was thinking, well, I've shown them everything. But then again, he thought, ah, one more thing. I can show them my wife because she is extremely beautiful. And as they see my wife, they will see how, how fortunate I am that I have a harem and I have a, an extremely beautiful queen. That was the purpose. King Aswera still wanted more glory. So he wanted the last day to end with a big bang. That's how many people want to make a grand exit. I recall Kobe Bryant, when he made this grand exit, his last game, he scored, if I'm not mistaken, 85 points. And, and the reason why he was glorying in that is because, you know, he wanted a grand exit. A game that people would always remember. At the age of maybe 38 years old, he could still score 85 points. And again, that's the pride of certain people. So again, what we find here is that King Xerxes wanted to show off his extremely beautiful wife. But you know what? All good things, most especially for people who love earth, people who are not Christians, people who are not believers, they all come to an end. And that's exactly what happened here. Instead of a loud bang that would have installed him in the minds of people, something terribly bad happened with the king. We find here the judgment of glory and self-exaltation in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12, please. It says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. 
So the loud bang that he wanted became frustrated. He became frustrated with what happened because his queen refused to come out. And what does this tell us? Glory seeking always ends in glory sinking. Could you say that with me? Glory seeking always ends in glory sinking. For the last time, glory seeking always ends in glory sinking. Now let's note the men were already drunk. For six months, they had been drinking. Of course, we cannot imagine that all of those days they were drinking all the time. Probably it was intermittent on the part of some people. But nevertheless, if you talk about six months and seven days, even if it happened intermittently, you were still drunk. And again, the last seven days, they were given an unlimited supply of wine. So they had been they had been drunk all throughout this time. The queen knew that this was going to be a recipe for disaster. To be in the presence of drunk men was a recipe for disaster. For her beauty to be displayed, she had to uncover the veil of her face, which at that time in that culture was already considered indecent. In fact, even in some cultures today, removing the veil is already considered indecent. So since the king and the men were dead drunk, there was even a possibility that she would be asked to make a lewd display of herself. That was a possibility. You know, Queen Vashti actually did the right thing because she was preserving her own dignity as a woman and as a queen. She did not want to be you know, an object, a piece of chattel to be displayed before people, before drunk men. And so she was preserving her own dignity. In fact, not only was she preserving her own dignity, but the dignity of her own husband. Let me share to you from commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible. Let me just read to you a paragraph. It goes, the refusal of Vashti to obey an order which required her to make an indecent exposure of herself before a company of drunken revelers was becoming both the modesty of her sex and her rank as queen. For according to Persian customs, the queen, even more than the wives of other men, was secluded from the public gaze. In other words, she should not even appear in public. Had not the king's blood been heated with wine or his reason overpowered by force of offended pride, he would have perceived that his honor as well as hers was consulted by her dignified conduct. But then again, here's where we see that pride will eventually be jilted and this is God's way of judging pride. Some proud people, some arrogant people have the illusion that they will always be proud, that they will always be on top of the world, that they will always be admired and applauded by people. The truth of the matter is these things would definitely end because if there is something, listen well, if there is something that God hates, He hates pride. And sometimes we may not even be aware that we have pride. But you know how we get tested? We get tested when, when people say something insulting to us. We get tested when, when people don't admire us. We get tested, dear brothers and sisters, when, when we become the butt of jokes. We get tested when, when people say something bad against us. When you and I are pricked, when you and I get hurt, when you and I have, have, desire, have this desire to, to fight back and hurt others because we got hurt, that is already a sign of pride. So just because we're not like King Xerxes, just because we're not like King Ahasuerus does not mean that you and I do not have pride. In fact, the fact, in fact, 
the fact that you and I covet certain things that we do not have is a sign that we have pride. When, we want, when we're not content where we are and we want a higher position or a higher function, or when you and I want to be promoted, when you and I want to be admired by certain people, then you know that pride is inside your heart. You and I know we are humble when we are content. When we are satisfied where we are. When we do not need the admiration nor the applause of certain people. That's how you know we're humble. But when in our hearts there's this appetite for more, well, you and I know that we have pride. And you know what? When you study history, the reign of Xerxes did not last very long. He reigned only from 485 B.C. to 465 B.C., just 20 years, very short reign for a king. So after the third year of his reign, he only reigned for just another 17 years. We also learn from history that the palace was destroyed by fire some, sometime during his reign. You know, the verse that comes into my mind is 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Could you turn your Bibles there? It says, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, that's all of us, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God, listen well, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So it's a good thing to be humble. Because when you are humble, the Bible says God will give grace to you. God will give unmerited favor to you. God will give you blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And the Bible also says that one day He will exalt you. But then, if you happen to be a very proud person, the Bible says God is opposed to you. He becomes your adversary. He becomes your enemy because He hates pride in people. And therefore, what's going to happen is instead of exaltation, humiliation will be what will take place in our lives. And once pride is jilted, you will find the fury and the folly of glory and self-exaltation, which is our last point here. Take a look at verse 13, and let me just read only up to verse 15. It says, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew the law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? What do we find here? The fury and the anger of King Xerxes. And he wanted to know, what do I do with Queen Vashti? She humiliated me in front of you. I thought I was going to go out with a loud bang. But instead, I fell down really hard on the ground. She humiliated me. She brought me to shame. This was a slap on my face. So what do I do right now with this woman? Now what do we see here? That pride is impatient. There was an immediate trial. When pride is jilted, it ends in rage. And rage can make you reck reckless, ruthless, as well as careless. That's what happens when, when you are in a rage. That's why when you're angry, it's not wise to, to act or to speak because you can speak and act in such a way wherein later on you will have your own regrets. So what do we observe here? The king seeks advice from his close underlings and it becomes an instant trial court. King Circus did not even ask his wife, why did you do that? Probably if King Xerxes asked, 
Queen Vashti, why did you do that? Maybe Queen Vashti would have even said to him, you know what? I was even preserving your own dignity. You were so drunk. And you were going to expose me to all these, these drunk people? I was really thinking about your honor. I was really thinking about your dignity. And, and yet, you did not see it that way. Perhaps, if given a voice, Queen Vashti could have explained herself. And maybe that kind of reasoning would have brought uh, soberness in the mind of the king. But again, that's what pride does. Pride doesn't think. Pride is just furious. Pride is impatient. But not only that, we find in verses 16 to 18, another characteristic of pride. Take a look at verse 16 to 18. In the presence of the king and the princess, Memukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. Well, what do you see here? You know, you know how I read this? I see insecurity here. Not only on the part of the king, but even all the officials, they were, they were insecure about themselves. They wanted their male superiority to always be at, at the forefront of things. And you know what? this is what pride is all about. Pride is always insecure. It's quite interesting. We would think that people, the actors and actresses in Hollywood would be the most secure people in the entire universe. But you know what? We read articles about these actors and actresses and we discover that they're so insecure that they're, they're afraid that, you know, they will grow old and, and that they would have wrinkles and that, you know, they will no longer be beautiful. They're afraid that they will no longer be admired, that, that the next beautiful actress or the next handsome actor would come into the scene and they would be relegated to supporting status instead of having their names, their, their names in, in the giant billboards, their names would now be little in those billboards because they're now just the supporting actor. In fact, isn't it true that sometimes Instead of being the protagonist, they become the antagonists. Now, that is what pride does. I recall one basketball player who was telling me he used to play um, professional basketball. And he said that when, when, during the heydays uh, of, his, of his peak uh, form, and he was glorying in that. But then when he started to enter the 30s, he noticed a slowing down. And, and the younger players were now overtaking him in the drills. And he began to feel insecure. In fact, he was thinking, the days are now coming when I will be removed and taken out of the team because I am no longer as quick as I used to be. I also recall the story of the queen who had removed all the mirrors, the Queen of England, who had removed all the mirrors in her room because she no longer wanted to look at herself. She used to be very beautiful. But then looking at the mirror, she saw herself aging and she could not take it anymore. And so she ordered all the mirrors to be removed from her room. That's what pride does. Pride is insecure. They were, the, the people here were afraid of the implications. Now let's take a look at verse 19 at this time. It says, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let, be, let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed. There's no turning back on this. 
that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another one who is more worthy than she. Verse 19 tells us that the king and all these men were vindictive. No more chances, no more second chances, no more hope of restoration. That's what pride does. Pride is vindictive. There was immediate and uncontested judgment. Vashti was deposed as queen. The decision was made for pride's sake, not for dignity's sake. But also the pride of all the men of that empire were very apparent in this particular case. Now, let me just tell you that as we talk about the pride of King Ahasuerus, let us not miss out on the big picture. Because we might be tempted to think that chapter 1 is just a story about pride. We need to be able to understand that the narrator of the story was actually setting this self up so that you and I might be able to see the big picture. As I mentioned to you a while ago, oftentimes we think that the events in our lives are unconnected dots. That they're not connected with one another. That God really has no design for our lives. That, that God is just operating by random chance. And what is happening to us is a matter of, of good fortune by chance or bad fortune by chance. So when you have that kind of attitude, you, you see a God who is capricious. You see a God who is not in control. And it's not very comforting, right? If that were who our God is, it's not quite comforting. It's not really quite inspiring. But then again, i just like to make mention to you that God was actually using the pride of Xerxes to be able to deliver his own people. It's interesting how the mistakes of certain people, how the rebelliousness of certain people could be turned around by God for the sake of his own people. That's why, friends, let's understand who our God is. Sometimes we live our lives as if today is not connected with tomorrow. Monday is not connected to Tuesday. Tuesday is not connected to Wednesday. Wednesday is not connected to Thursday and Friday and so on. And we just think, well, this is just what my day is all about. And we fail to realize that in the end, God really connects those dots. What are the events in your life that are taking place right now? Some of them might even be uneventful. Some of them might be tragic. Some of them might be presenting difficulties and adversities in your life. And some of them might be good. And you're thinking, how does this all add up? How does, how does this all get meshed into one beautiful tapestry? I'd like to be able to say to you, brothers and sisters, that God has a plan, and His plan for your life is beautiful if you are right at the center of the will of God. Amen? God is always in control. The truth is that this tragic event was going to be the very foundation of God's deliverance for the nation of Israel. God is always several steps ahead. That's why we need to trust Him. Let me ask you this question. Do you trust the Lord? Can you ask your neighbor, do you trust the Lord? You need to trust Him. Otherwise, you will be a victim of Satan. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16? It says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. How do you extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one? Through faith. You need to trust God. In the same way that Abraham trusted the Lord, he was looking at his 90-year-old body and he was looking at his wife who was in her 80s and he was thinking, God made the promise to me that 
I'm going to have an offspring, but I don't see that happening. I am aging, and, and God keeps on telling me that I will have an offspring, and then all of a sudden, 90, at the age of 99 years old, and Sarah closing in on 90, 89 probably, you know, she, she became pregnant all of a sudden. Unprecedented, never happened before in the history of mankind, but God is in the business of performing miracles, and that is why you need to trust God. Amen? You need to trust Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And this is what the Bible says in 1 John verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? God is greater than Satan. Amen? God is greater than all. Hallelujah. Now in verse 20, it says, When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Oh, this is what the men wanted. They wanted to simply protect themselves. The law here was designed to protect the pride of men rather than their own dignity. The law was designed to make men sovereign over women in all things. It was intended to protect male sovereignty and male superiority. Pride always seeks to protect the self. You know what Paul Tripp said? We all have in our hearts an inner lawyer. We have an inner lawyer. And that inner lawyer in us is always exonerating us. It is always justifying us. It is always telling us we are right and we can never be wrong. That is what that inner lawyer does inside of us. And that's what pride does, by the way. You know, we need to be open when certain people correct us, when certain people reprimand us. We need to be open because God might really be speaking through these people. Sometimes we fail to realize that a reprimand is not necessarily an expression of anger, but rather an expression of love. But some people would rather not be reprimanded. Why? Because they're protecting themselves. And that's exactly what we see here. Now in verse 21, it says, This word pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memokan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. What do we see here? Pride rests only when blood, quote-unquote, when blood has been shed. When somebody has has fought back when somebody has repaid the perceived injustice or perceived evil. That's the only time pride begins to rest. Again, friends, as we take a look at the whole of chapter 1, it is interesting to note that the sinful pride of Xerxes becomes the very vehicle that God will cause to providentially care for the nation of Israel. In fact, if we fast forward to, four, to 424 B.C., because of the ensuing persecution coming from the events that will follow in the chapters that we will read, the result was the people of Israel returned back to their own land under the leadership of Ezra this time. I was asked this question um, in Baguio City when we were doing the book launch. And the question was, how long did it take for you to make the book? I think the question was something like that. And my answer was, my whole lifetime. 
Sometimes we think that when we do certain things, it is really something that is a product of our actions and our thoughts for the moment. The truth of the matter is that our whole life, listen well, might be a preparation for one big event. When I preach a sermon, my thinking is, I did not just prepare the sermon for a week. My thinking is that God has laid out certain events, certain circumstances, certain people, and all these events, circumstances, and people have allowed me to enter into certain experiences so that I gain insight and wisdom into my personal situation so that when I preach a sermon, it is not a sermon that is simply a product of my study, but it is a product of all those events, all those things that have happened in the past, and all of these things have contributed in such a way that when I preach a sermon, I am not simply producing before you something that I have researched, but something that comes from the wealth of experiences I've had, coming from the bottom of my heart, because this is something that I have not just read, but something that I've experienced in my life, so that, just like now, I could say that our God is in control, our God is a providential God, and our God will never, ever fail us. Amen? So listen up, brothers and sisters. Your life is not a series of independent dots that we have no connection whatsoever. Everything that has happened in your life, every dot, every event, is eventually going to be meshed together with all those other dots in your life so that God weaves that beautiful tapestry, that beautiful design which you and I call our own lives. And God ultimately achieves His purpose and He gets the glory. Amen? He gets the glory. So shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, for the book of Esther. Thank you for the lessons about pride. And may we not be in the place of Xerxes, the place of pride. May we be found in the place of humility in the place where you could give us grace and exalt us in due time. And Lord, we thank you, dear Lord, because even as we observe the mess in the world that we are living in, and we might be wondering whether you are aware or that you are in control, we know that through your providence, you're working behind the scenes. You're working behind the scenes of our lives. And every event, Lord, is contributing to a climax. Every event is ascending towards fulfilling your purposes and towards fulfilling the glory of your holy name. May we be found, Lord, in the place of humility. May we be found at the center of your will so that, dear Lord, we may not be the antagonists, but rather the protagonists in this stage of life. May we not be in the place of Xerxes, nor in the place of Haman, but rather may we be found in the place of Daniel, 
in the place of Mordecai, in the place of Esther. Oh God, have mercy upon each and every one of us. And we thank you for today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher today. And we just pray, Lord, that faith might be stirred up in our hearts. We thank you also for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And may you be so kind to bless us in return. Lord, for the sake of your kingdom and for the glory of your holy name. And whatever has been achieved today, we return back to you all the glory, all the praises, and all the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. And God's people said,